So I was listening to a podcast uh, the other day from N.T. Wright, and he described a very, very unsettling situation that he found himself in uh, on a trip in the Middle East, and no, it's not what you think. Um, he actually, he was walking around the city that he was in, and he started feeling hungry, and so he went to one of, the, like, a stand on the way back to his hotel, and he bought some snacks, and in, it included a bar of chocolate. And he heads back to his room, and he settles himself, and then he breaks off a corner of the chocolate bar to eat it, and drops it in shock with a shout, because... As he's getting ready to pop it in his mouth, he looked at the rest of the chocolate bar, and the rest of the chocolate bar looks alive. That's right. What on the outside looked like a delicious treat was actually housing a colony of worms that was consuming it from the inside out. So the lesson is, check your chocolate when you're in third world countries. I guess. I mean, there's probably more to it than that, actually. He... He actually described that as, as a very, very visceral, visual illustration for him of how stark a difference it is between external righteousness and internal righteousness. And so I guess you can add wormy chocolate to whitewashed tombs and unwashed dishes. And I'm sorry if I ruined chocolate for you, but maybe you have an inkling of how Dan Hickman feels now, okay? I don't know. Um... <laughs> And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should ask him, all right? Um, outer practice versus internal identity. That's a big deal for Jesus. He brings up speeches and parables all through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount is no different in its description of the stark difference between external righteousness and internal righteousness. Um, in regard to how you live out the practice of the law. And today in our reading, very much how you practice the identity of righteousness. He turns his attention today, Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, toward religious or righteous practices. And I'm going to read out the entire section with you so that we can just kind of listen to Jesus' insight together, okay? And so in Matthew chapter 6... This is what he says. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by men. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they are going to be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Forgive us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you, if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Then when you fast, also do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they're fasting. And I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, pour oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, as we've been going through this part of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, I've been reading and rereading the Sermon on the Mount as a whole piece, um, just to get a sense of kind of hearing it all in one shot and, and how it would sound all together to somebody listening to it. And, and I highly recommend that, not only because it'll have you hearing things and noticing things that you might miss, um, but, but also because it can, it can be unsettling. It can be very unsettling when you start to realize how this all fits together. Um, and, and unsettling in a good way, okay? Not in a bad way. I don't, I don't think, I think when Jesus unsettles us, it's always in a good way. Let's just put it that way. But um, one thing, a very, very powerful, unsettling example that hit me in a new way, I wrestled a bit as to what to do with it this week. Okay, here it is. Make of it what you will. In chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus is putting the closing, kind of putting the closer on all of his statements about our peculiarity as disciples, illustrating this whole salt and light metaphor about our public identity. And he says this, So let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Commands don't get a whole lot clearer than that. This is what I want you to do. This is the result that I'm looking for. This is why I'm telling you to do it. But how does that square with what Jesus is saying here in one? Okay, he even uses a lot of the same language. It actually flows almost the exact same way, but it is a, instead of a positive command, I want you to do this, it's a prohibitive one, don't do this. And it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness before men in order to be seen by men, for if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. How do these two things square up together? I'll be honest, at first glance, they kind of seem to almost be the opposite of one another. And, and I say to myself, well, well, surely Jesus isn't like making one statement and then like forgetting what he said like 15 minutes later. And surely he's not making one statement and then contradicting himself 15 minutes later. He's not an, he's not an earthly leader. He's a heavenly one, right? Okay. There's got to be something more that we need to understand in order to find the heart of Jesus' words here. Because I do believe that Jesus is saying, your identity will be practiced out publicly in front of people on purpose. You were made in the image of God. You were made in the image of your father. It is the pinnacle of the Christian existence to embody that image for others to see. I think we would all agree with that, right? And yet, then we come to this and we kind of trip over it because then we go, okay, well, I'm supposed to do it, but I'm not supposed to do it. How does that work? First off, I think it's really important that we understand that Jesus is probably using the word righteousness in a different way than we might assume. 
okay, where I might be led to consider righteousness as a set of behaviors or belief that convey a status or an identity, Jesus is actually flipping that around and going much deeper with it. He uses this word righteousness as the identity for his disciples, okay? Something that has already been bestowed by God on his children rather than something that they can fabricate or maintain on their own. If we follow this idea of righteousness as given identity first, responsive action second, it really shapes all the times that Jesus uses it in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If I take that definition and place it in the space of the word righteousness, the statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount really, really pop. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a God-given identity of righteousness, for they will be filled by him. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted by the world because of the righteous identity that God has filled them with, for it is a validation that God truly has bestowed upon them the title of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20, I tell you that unless the source of your righteous identity surpasses the source of identity driving the morally religious around you, you are not a part of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 6.33, so seek first God's kingdom and the righteousness identity that only he can bestow and the things that you need will be given to you. It's a powerful image, right? And if we apply it to the beginning of our reading today, I think it really begins to crystallize what Jesus is talking about here. Be careful that you don't find yourself engaging in the practices of a righteous identity of God for the sake of people's acknowledgement. If you do, you will never receive the validation that you really crave and need, which is the validation of your heavenly father. Because you will be looking for something that he's already given you. You will be striving for something that you already have. You will be looking for something that is already within your grasp. And I think the critical piece for Jesus is not whether we will practice righteous living in the public setting or not. We've already been commanded to, okay? Jesus never questions prayer or giving or fasting. Okay, fasting, that could just be a whole other sermon by itself, okay? We're not even familiar with that one, I don't think. But even with the ones that we are familiar with, like the prayer and the giving, they, he never questions doing them. He assumes that they will be active practices of the disciple. And so it's assumed that we are going to publicly, corporately, and individually practice our identity of righteousness. To do so would be a failure of that identity. Salt losing its saltiness, light hidden under a bowl. Not because we're not doing what we need to do to earn that righteousness, but because if we already are righteousness, we will live out of that righteousness. Okay? If it's already been bestowed on us as an identity, if it's already who you are as a child of God, you will live that way. The key, Jesus says, is your motivation for practicing those worshipful and moral acts that define discipleship. Who are we doing them for and why? This is the difference between the disciple and the hypocrite, says Jesus. Okay? 
And, and the reason this is such an important distinction is that Jesus is actually picking, I believe, he's actually picking at a question of honor. Okay? Hope you track with me here, okay? Because I think the, uh, the, the concepts of honor and shame can be a bit murky, a little foreign for us, okay? We, we know them mostly in cultures outside of ourselves. We know them in, in cultures mostly, honestly, like in the Eastern world. For example, like the, the Japanese concept of Bushido, okay? Honor above all else, okay? Communal honor above all else. Communal reputation above all else. The maintenance of honor above all else. And so those things kind of seem really, really foreign to us where honor and shame are communal, cultural pressures for conformity to society. Your reputation is shaped by communal perception, and so then is your identity. Who you are is shaped by communal perception. Okay, and I, we might disregard that idea. We might even disdain it, okay, and say, look, I, you know, we don't need that. After all, we're individuals. We make our own choices. We have self-determination is one of the things that we prize so very much. Even as we see ourselves a part of a local, national, and global community, we still say oh, self-determination. I am my own person, okay? I want you to think about this for a second, though. Because I would say that honor and shame operate more in our mindset than we're aware of. We may not, we may not feel like we have an official communal structure that shapes identity and reputation, but I think we've got an unofficial one. You always do, okay? Um, like, I'll give you an example, like, again, kind of cross-cultural, okay? As somebody from the States, who is probably even more self-determined and individualistic, right? Um, I'm sure. Okay, and coming to Canada, I remember, like, the shock that I got in the commercials, specifically about recycling. The juice box pointing the finger at you going, dun, 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 you know, like, okay, everything that you don't recycle says something about you. And I was like, forget you. <laughs> Not telling me what to do. I but that's a cultural pressure, isn't it? That is an honor and shame-based response. Someone is watching you not recycle that juice box. What do they think about you? Oh, nothing. And we laugh about it, but it's true, right? Because even if we're individuals, we care what people think. We do. We do. And it will drive us lots of different, I mean, what we do with that, we do a myriad of different things with that, right? Okay, some of us, we care about what people think, and so we toe the line all the time. Like, we're okay, I care about what people think of it. Some of us care about what people think of us, and we get angry about that, and we say, forget this. I'm doing whatever I want flamboyantly because I'm trying to make it so that you don't know that I care about what you think about me. There are lots of different ways that we do that. But what, what people think about us matters to us. Okay, why is that? Is that all bad? I don't think it's all bad. I, I mean, I actually think that God gave us the need to matter to other people. Because God made us relational beings. You can't be in a relationship with somebody if you don't care what they think about you. Right? Right? 
If you don't care about them and you don't care what they think about you, how can you actually have a good relationship? Apathy does not apathy about other people does not breed good relationship at all. And God says from the very beginning, you're communal by nature. Okay? So there's a piece of that that is noble, and there's a piece of that that is good. But then there's also lots of ways that that can get completely out of whack. So what do we do with honor and shame? And what is Jesus trying to do with honor and shame? Okay, let me go, let me go a little bit further, and let's kind of track back into the time that, that, that Jesus is speaking in. Okay? In the Roman mindset and in the Greek culture that they had adopted, virtue or honorable identity, it was the pinnacle of personal ambition. Great people of history were great, not because of titles, not because of deeds, not because of wealth in and of themselves, but because those things were seen as an acknowledgement of their embodiment of virtue. The reason that they had titles, the reason that they had great deeds, the, raise, the reason that they had wealth or, or any of those kind of blessings was because they embodied virtue. Now, that idea also permeates Jewish society as well. Okay, the things that we see the Pharisees doing, even the, even the things that Jesus is bagging on that are good things, okay, they did not just to obey the law for its own sake, but that in keeping the law so perfectly, in going after it so meticulously, they were validating themselves as the embodiment of what it meant to be a good Jewish person in right relationship with Yahweh. It was an identity thing. And that may sound noble or at least harmless in theory, but to think about what that does to your motivation. If honor demands that you display the public acts of virtuous living, I mean, and, and I'll be honest, especially in the male identity, okay? I, like, ladies, I think this can be applied to all of us, but I want us to realize this is one of those areas where gender actually matters in the Bible, okay? When Jesus is saying, don't do your righteous acts before men to be seen by men, he's actually, he's actually pinpointing a cultural paradigm. The fact that the life of the male was out in the polis and how you were viewed as a righteous individual or a virtuous individual was that you were actively practicing the things out in the public arena so that people could say, yes, this is a virtuous man. He does this, 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 and this. Okay? So he's actually pushing on that specific example, even though I think we could apply it all across the board because we all have the same motivations for why we do what we do, whatever our arena may be. Your reputation, which includes economic and social and political ramifications for your entire household, hangs on your public display of virtue. But not just your public display of virtue, it's acknowledgement by the community around you. Think about that. Honor claimed isn't really counted as honor unless someone else acknowledges it. Honor is an honor unless somebody says that's honorable. Virtue isn't virtue unless somebody else says that's virtuous. Righteousness isn't righteousness unless somebody else says that's righteous. You aren't you unless somebody else says that's you. 
See how tricky that gets? I mean, they're, 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 in fact, there are a few things worse than to act honorably and have that honor publicly challenged or worse, disregarded. There are numerous stories of great Greeks and Romans choosing honorable suicide over having to live with their honor spurned by the public, and they are actually historically recorded as being honorable for doing so. Think about that. When it would be better to end your life than to live a life without virtue. So this is a powerful thing Jesus is working against, okay? You can see how easy it would be for a person to come to believe that it is the display of righteous identity that actually creates or reinforces who they are. You do what everyone tells you makes you a good person, and then you're a good person. Does that sound familiar? I hope it does. I think we've played with that one a few times, haven't we? I think we wrestle with this more than we think, because while we may not care what the whole world thinks about us, there are groups of people in this world that we deeply care about what they think about us. We want to be viewed as virtuous in their eyes for our own satisfaction and peace. And so this is a deep, powerful identity question that Jesus is challenging. And the way he challenges it with is this question, whose honor matters more to the disciple? Their own or their master's? Who will sit at the center of the righteous activity of the disciple? Us or our Lord? Moreover, what do we want to receive more as a reward? The fickle, finite honor of humanity or the eternal, steadfast honor of our Heavenly Father? Whose honor matters more? That's the real question here. Practically, if you look at the formula that Jesus is using, I don't think that he's telling us that the practice of righteousness should be a private matter. He is not telling us that public prayers are wrong. He's not telling us to not have a plan for giving. And he's certainly not telling us that prayer and giving and fasting or any of the things that make up a life of piety are optional. Quite the opposite, actually. Jesus says these things are indispensable in order to shape a disciple for kingdom work. It is in the practice of them in both the public and the private arena. The disciple engaging is bringing the kingdom of heaven to themselves and those around them by participating in that. They're opening the doors wide for the Holy Spirit to enter in them and work through them. So he's not saying don't do these things. And he's not saying don't hide these things away over here. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we cannot, we must not, do it out of a sense of gaining achievement. We must not do that. Prayer does not make you a better Christian publicly or privately. It is because God has already drawn near to you in his spirit that you have the ability to pray both intimately and publicly. And so when you do so, it's out of the blessing of his honor, not to obtain the blessing of his honor. And yet he rewards you with his honor when people say, thank you so much for praying for me. And you can say, yes, that is good. Because it validates, not that I'm such a good Christian, but it validates that God's kingdom is moving. We do not give because it identifies us as good philanthropic people or even real disciples. 
We give because we are already immersed in the riches that Christ has lavished on us, both physical and spiritual. And it's out of that identity, out of that confidence, we give lavishly to glorify him. We fast not so that people can say, wow, I can't believe you actually do that. What a disciple. We do it because we're already convinced in our souls that our dependence for righteous identity is rooted and filled in the Lord. We need him more than we ever needed food or drink. And we have him. And so we willingly forego those things that we may experience him more. Whatever it is that we do that expresses our righteous identity, we do it for him. Whatever we do that makes us visible as salt and light is done as inconspicuous piety. Even if everybody can see it, the motivation of our heart is not to draw ourselves into the matter. It's to draw our father into the center of it. And that is what becomes the source of our joy. And that is what it becomes the source of our delight. I asked a... <laughs> I asked a question in class this morning, like, are we allowed to feel good about God using us? Are we allowed to feel good about being a Christian? Sometimes I wonder if we've duped ourselves into this idea that, like, we're not allowed to feel good about this or that we're not allowed to experience joy about this. And yet I think, I think the joyful life is probably one of the hallmarks of being salt and light in the world around us. It's not just that we're disciples, but that we actually love doing this. We love doing this because we love the one that's called us to this. And we see his vision, and we see his glory, and we go, man, this is the best. Sometimes I think we're afraid to feel good about being righteous people. Because the connotation is, is that if we're righteous, well, we're self-made righteous. Right? And the temptation is to say, well, yeah, I had a hand in that. I believe the true reward is found, Jesus says, when we are willing to vacate the playing field of the good Christian game. And when we refuse to put on our acting mask and play the part in order to be seen and validated as righteous people. And instead we rest in the fact that our Father has already bestowed his righteousness upon us. He has already freed us and empowered us to truly be righteous not just act that way, not just try to be that way, but that we've already been freed to be that because that's who he called us. He calls us his righteousness, right? Paul puts it, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become what? His righteousness. See, we can choose to live, I think, as Christian mercenaries if we want to, okay? This is the best way I knew how to sort it out as I looked at three different people, three different types of people. 
We could be Christian mercenaries if we want. We could be people employed by the king to be representatives of the kingdom. We do the actions, we get acknowledgement, we get our pay, and that's it. Purely transactional, okay? We can go down that road if we want to. God will give us the freedom to limit our imagination of his relationship with us to purely transactional. I give you good works, you give me righteousness. I give you good works, you give me eternal life. I give you good works, you give me a good rep. I give you good works, you give me whatever. Okay? It's not right. It's not holy. It's not true. But we can imagine ourselves that way if we want. We can also imagine ourselves as Christian slaves. Okay? I think it's really easy to do because sometimes we have this, this you know, where we, hear, where we hear of being slaves to righteousness or, or, or you know, I am, I am a slave of Christ. And, and we take that idea and I think maybe we turn it into something a little bit more than it's supposed to be. We're owned by the king. We do the work of the king. But we have no status or identity with the king. And we act out of a humility that tries to remove us completely from the equation. Or we can be what Jesus calls us more than anything else, children of our Father. And I found this metaphor to be so helpful when I think about how Jesus wants us to live out of our public practice of righteous identity. When one of your kids does something beautiful, that reminds me of you, I tell them that. I've seen when one of my kids does something cool that reminds someone of Nicole or of me, and they tell them that. And I see something interesting happen, okay? I, I have never heard a child when told, I love that, you remind me of your mom or dad. Tell me, well, you know, I try my hardest to live up to that good standard that my parents set. I wouldn't want people to think that I'm not their kid. And I've never heard a kid say, oh, that has absolutely nothing to do with me. I wouldn't want you confusing me with my parents. I've never heard them say that at all. You know what a child does? They glow with satisfaction. Not because they were insecure about whether they weren't their parent's kid or not. Not because of any performance anxiety that's all of a sudden been alleviated. They just glow because they're glad that they look like their dad or their mom. That people can see that. They love that. Do we love that more than anything else? Do we love that more than the fact that somebody told us that? Do we just love the fact that we get to look like our dad? That we get to look like our Heavenly Father? 
And usually, you know what happens? I see that their first move is to look at their parent and receive the real praise, not from me, but from their parent. Who they know already loves them and who they know calls them child. What would it look like if we approached our righteous living like that church? How much more powerful would our witness be? How much more uncomplicated and easy would it be to be a disciple of Jesus out in the polis? If we would just ditch our performance anxiety for a minute. If we would stop worrying about what people do or don't think about our acts of righteousness. And settle into the honor that we have already been given as children of the king because we so deeply care about what he thinks about us. And he's already told us what he thinks about us. Sitting on that table right there are the symbols of what he thinks about us, right? He didn't etch it in wooden stone. He etched it in flesh and bone of his son. So my prayer for you and my benediction for you as we close this out and as we start to move toward the table is this. May your lives be blessed with joy and satisfaction in following these words of Jesus. And may your authentic striving be to surrender in your heart, both privately and publicly, to your Heavenly Father who sees into the secret of your heart and is ready to shower his reward upon you, his honor on you, because you are his 